Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 311. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com. And we're excited to have back with us the internationally acclaimed and science fiction comic book author and now ancient stone mystery historian, Mike Luoma. Hey, Barney. Mike. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. all right. Things are going really well. So I know. You are a prolific sci-fi author. As of the last few years, you really kind of got a deep dive in, and you're kind of hinting about it last time you were on the show a couple of years ago, about really stuttering, studying curiosities that you noticed in the woods that just kind of built up into doing some significant study on New England stone mysteries. Yeah, I am. Um started going off to check out stone chambers originally because hmm. i was like what there are stone chambers in the woods what's going on i don't know after a fascination with that and watching shows like america on earth and and some of these things talking about like european explorers coming here before columbus hmm. maybe they built the stone chambers i decided i was going to start checking them out and as i did that as i actually experienced the stone chambers my whole opinion of what they were changed. Okay. I didn't think so much it was as Europeans that were here before Columbus, but rather I got this strong, like intuitive sense. It was actually indigenous work. When I was in the Upton stone chamber in Upton, Massachusetts, I checked that out. and It's a really cool chamber because it has a long entryway. And then inside it opens up into this big dome chamber okay it's all built of stone it's actually on on my uh ancient stone mystery site it's the um the chamber that's on the cover of the book and on the picture in the background you go in it it it's just really i don't know it's surprising how dark it is in there and it's got a corbelled ceiling so the stones kind of build up and then it's capped off by a single stone and after Standing in there and kind of wondering who built it, I just, I did. I got this intuitive sense that this was indigenous work that went a long way back. Right. So I started asking questions and posting pictures. And as I did that, people were like, you've got to read this book, Mamatu. Okay. Written in 1989 by these two guys, James Maver and Byron Dix. They basically talked about the fact that they thought a lot of New England's older stonework, the stuff we see in our woods, dated back to indigenous times. Wow. So it was actually built by the earlier indigenous people. Right. That was a whole new concept to me, but they were talking about like a chamber, a stone chamber down in, in South Royalton, Vermont called calendar one that they called calendar one because they felt that the Valley it was in was kind of a, a celestial calendar, different stuff that was on the different peaks around this Valley could be used to tell the different seasons based on what was rising on the horizon for stars and, you know, the sun and moon and their placement as the years and, you know, the year went along, things like that. So they found these alignments and then they went down to the Upton stone chamber and actually found, they felt there were alignments from that chamber to a nearby ridge called Pratt Hill that had stone elements that were built on top of it. And they felt because of the stars and the alignments they found that it 
was a chamber for viewing the stars that went back well into antiquity. Mm. So these guys who created Manitou changed kind of the viewpoint of a lot of people who had been thinking this was earlier European work pre-Columbus. Right. And it was really wild for me to read that book because as I was reading about these places, I was getting invited to see the chambers that they were writing about. Wow. You know, it just, it would sync up. And then there was this really wild coincidence as I was reading it at my mom's house. This was like during the pandemic in 2020, like as we were getting into that early summer. I'm reading Manitou and it's talking about a four thousand year old indigenous stone wall was found in the flag swamp in marlboro massachusetts huh. now that is about a mile from where i grew up so i was reading about that about a mile from where it existed and what's even crazier is that they discovered this in the late 70s but in 1980 they blew it up to make way for a highway access road oh man the oldest stone structure ever found in Massachusetts was a 4,000 year old indigenous stone wall about a mile from where I grew up and they blew it up. <laughs> it's like, there's no respect for indigenous stonework in Massachusetts. And it's not really acknowledged by some of the different state archeologists around New England. Some, some have come along, but others just don't see it. And um, there's actually a, a, an archeologist named Curtis Hoffman who wrote a really great study and put it out in 2018 it's called stone prayers and it looked into the fact that a lot of this stonework instead of being what was assumed to be colonial or assumed to be later sheep farmers work it actually like i said predated contact and was indigenous stonework built by earlier indigenous people the, the ancestors of those we know today as the author of this book are you asking questions or are you providing answers well i wanted to write a book that was a good introduction to these ideas okay and i didn't want to write something that i felt was exploitive of indigenous peoples because they've had a lot of exploitation already right so i thought what i should do is tell my story of discovering what might be going on here Right. how it might be indigenous work so it's really me talking about the places that i visited and the experiences i had there and also the research i did and what i discovered as i was going to each site and then as you get later in the book i start to share some of the ideas that i've developed as i've been seeing things over time right because i started to see I, i've got a lot of like unique things going on in my head <laughs> As I, I guess we all do, but as far as like uh, art and design, I've got a real sense of, of spatial relationships. I also spent a couple of years as a mason tender, working my way through college, helping build like industrial size warehouses and, and like big block masonry. Right. And it's just kind of weird how some of these different aspects have informed what I'm doing now and looking at stonework. And what some people had written off as like clearing piles or or just farmers pushing stones to the sides of their fields, not real stonework. I can actually see repeated designs that 
they're not just in one place. They're 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 repeated all over New England, and and indicative of earlier indigenous work. And it's just that some of these people who were in the field earlier just couldn't distinguish the fact that this was actually work and actually by design and not some falling down stone wall. Why is that? Why do, why do you feel as though like mainstream historians uh, don't look at these stone works in that same way? Well, I was, I was talking about Curtis Hoffman and, and stone right. prayers and, and in that Curtis actually faults his fellow academics. He's a, he's a, a now retired archeologist from Bridgewater state or uh, university of Bridgewater in Massachusetts. And, part of the Massachusetts Archaeological Society. He used to edit their bulletin. And after discovering that these seem to be indeed stone prayers, he faulted his colleagues for not acknowledging the fact that they are. And, and even points out that now the United Southern and Eastern tribes have come forth and, and said that, yes, this is the work of their ancestors. These are stone prayers. These are ceremonial stone landscapes. Um, but the failure to acknowledge this he calls scientism and mm. stems from like this dogmatic refusal to want to acknowledge that amateurs like myself or not myself necessarily, but people like me who came before me came up with these ideas and presented them. People like Maver and Dix, mm. um, you know, they, they don't want to admit that these guys had a valid idea because they don't like the source. Um, Maver and Dix were part of a group called the New England Antiquities Research Association, NERA. And I'm now a part of that. I actually ended up, from all I've been doing, I'm, I'm now on the board of NERA. At least for the time being, I just got uh, nominated this year and I've started doing a little bit more with the group. So, yeah. um, But they don't, they, uh, the, the academic crowd and the professional crowd don't, don't like the fact that amateurs have come up with so much of this stuff and so what are some of your theories then that you've that that you've been um researching well it it started with the idea that um stone rows some of these these stone walls especially like single stone rows were older and the chambers might be older hmm. so i started like I, I had said, with a fascination with the chambers. But over time, began to see things in a broader sense. I also, as I would take pictures of stone rows and post them online, I was joining different groups on Facebook. I didn't have a group myself yet, but I was joining groups and posting what I was finding and getting feedback. There's a group on there called the Ceremonial Stone Landscapes of Turtle Island, or and it's uh, started by this, or at least run by this guy, Tim McSweeney. He's one of the people that's been doing this for a long time, since like the early 90s. He has a blog called Waking Up on Turtle Island, huh. which is quite good. And he's been really, as as far as like somebody I could learn from, I, I disagree with him and we don't always get along, but um, he's taught me a, a whole lot and really first opened my eyes to what could be in the stone rows because what he'll do is if you post stuff online, he'll take the pictures and sometimes add antlers and eyes. So you can see 
what it would look like if it was an actual effigy form. And then you begin to see it as an actual effigy form. And you begin to see how there could be serpent forms in the stone rows. And you see the designs, or I began to see the design work that were in the stone rows. And, you know, noticing that there are sometimes like rhomboidal stones that are, are surrounded by other stones to form like eyes or, or links or coils and often these serpent rows zigzag across the landscape sometimes they undulate they go up and they go down and so those are just some of the things i began to see some of them end in these like large stones so it's like a boulder sized serpent head okay and what's funny is that a lot of this has been done down in Massachusetts, but because that was kind of like where it started. And a lot of the chambers are down in southern Vermont and Putnam County, New York. And there's chambers in Massachusetts, but not so much up here. Although I did get to see one stone chamber in northern Vermont whose location I can't reveal because I was sworn to secrecy about it. So that was a, it was a chamber that Joe Citro told me about. Right. Yeah, you're familiar with Joe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so if he swears you to secrecy, you don't want to. You don't want to go back on that. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, so what? So it was yeah. really cool because you, you could walk up and through it, and it was huge stones and just very impressive. What is the what is the reason from you know based off of the historical of like which First Nation um, cultures were around in Southern? Vermont and in Massachusetts that it wasn't prevalent in say towards Canada and then Northern Vermont. What I'm finding is that it's here. Mm. See, that's, that's part of the reason that I'm okay. doing the research I'm doing is that, you know, I, there, I mean, no offense, but the, the Vermont public people, they have their, their Vermont podcasts and things yeah. and, they, they had a podcast about where did Vermont stone walls come from? Yeah. And not only did they ignore any indigenous origin to them, they said, oh, indigenous people did stonework, but not like this. So I'm not sure what kind of stonework they were supposed to have done. Right. But they also said that there are no stone walls in the Champlain Valley because of the way the, the um, glaciers came through. Right. And they didn't leave... The, the material for stone wall building here in the Champlain Valley. But like the assumption that these were stone walls built by sheep farmers or stone right. walls built by colonial people, that's not true. I can show you pictures and uh, you were showing some of my pictures of stone walls in the Champlain Valley. Right. And yeah. I often find them in places where stone prayers are said to originate. Those who are, who are doing the work, like there's um, an indigenous uh, archaeologist anthropologist named Noham Kasha Chilling, and he's he's got papers that describe like where the stone prayers these stone prayers often occur, and it's in places where the landscape changes, where bedrock breaks through and water breaks through, and a lot of times the stone prayers are oriented around water of some kind. Right, and and so what I started to do is look for those places in Vermont where that was true and began to find it up here around the Champlain Valley. And it's often at a, at a height where 
the Champlain Sea used to reach. Before we had a Lake Champlain, at the end of the Ice Age, there was an actual saltwater sea in the Champlain Valley that went up a, around Labrador and reached the Atlantic Ocean. Right. And there were Paleo Indians living on that sea. And eventually it receded because after the Ice Age and the ice sheets went away, the Earth's crust rebounded. It rose up. Right. So that these days, the places that were at the shoreline of the Champlain Sea and at sea level are now like 400 and some odd feet above sea level and higher. Right. And right. when I started looking at that height around the Champlain Valley, that's when I started to find the most stuff wow. as far as the stonework. And so I'm not, I mean, I can, I, I kind of speculate that it might go back to the Stone Age. I mean, to the Ice Age. Right. Some of this, some of this work could be like ancestor worship that was kept up over time. Uh, but it's really, it's, it's, it's kind of a strange thing, but around the Champlain Valley, I'm finding stonework similar to what they were finding in Massachusetts and Southern Vermont now up here. Right. And it's not always that well known. Like I, I've gotten lucky in that the, the people whose work I was reading, like, uh, Tim McSweeney's and there's another guy who had a great blog has a great blog called rock piles uh, and that's a guy named Peter Waxman who did a lot of work out of Concord Massachusetts and then there's a guy who was based out of I think Pennsylvania because in or New Jersey Norm Muller who mm. did a lot of work even in Vermont he's done work and um, all of these guys I like learned from and now I'm in touch with like via email and and like there was a site in Jericho, Vermont, that I came across that I was like, wow, look at this. And there wasn't anything in the archives of Nira, which I looked for. And because I know Norm and he's looked at some of the stuff up here in Vermont, I asked him if he knew of this stuff in Jericho. And he, he sent me notes from having visited it in 2010. <laughs> so it was great. I mean, the people that I learned from, I'm now corresponding with and and well i'm right. still learning right. but because it's such a specialized field it, there's not a lot of people and it's 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 kind of an honor to have them engage with me the way they do right now so for for those that might be the uh just like the the a lay person who might not know what to look for um because you have a lot of people here in Vermont that love to go, as we were saying, like to go out in the woods. Um, if someone wants to start looking for these, how can they tell a difference between this and and these the, these rock structures and a sheep farmer's wall? Well, one thing to look for is yeah. irregular coursework, like coursework. Okay. By coursework, I mean like a row of stones. And generally with an indigenous work, you find it's only about one stone row thick, maybe maybe two sometimes, okay. but mostly they're the single stone rows. And their coursework tends to go up and down and move in creative ways and be like almost forming different shapes 
as opposed to like the one over two structure, kind of the brick-like stonework that okay. you see in the typical European wall. European right. walls generally are, are, are much more regular in their, their structure. You will sometimes see a European wall end in a boulder because they'll use that to stop the, the coursework. So then you need to look at the coursework itself and see if there are any forms and shapes that are being constructed or if it's just very regular. Usually right. European walls are very nicely built, very straight. And, you know, if there's coping on top, it's very straight. Whereas an indigenous wall often will have a very curvy top right. because, like I say, it's it's more of an organic structure to the coursework as opposed to that one over two. Right. That's just for stone rows. You often see um, like what in Europe they call cairns. Right. Those cairns in New England are said now to be likely indigenous work, especially ones that aren't, you know, carefully made uh, that aren't i don't want to say carefully made of course they're carefully made they're even more carefully made because they have like diving coursework and they they're built to have like um effigy forms some of them are built to represent turtles or, or built to represent other forms that we don't know i mean i'm we guess at turtles we guess at serpents where we do that because the imagery and the designs that we're seeing seem to correspond to indigenous artwork and, right. and and the work that has been done like what great serpents have been depicted like throughout north america what we now call north america so it's a it's a case of of trying to compare what we're seeing with what's come before and making correlations right you know? and it's like okay well why why do these look this way well, perhaps it's because it resembles this. And so then we say it's a serpent or a turtle or, or mm. something like that. And sometimes you'll see that a stone row will have where one serpent ends and goes into another or they, they'll meet or one will have like a, an egg shape in its mouth that turns into the tail of another serpent. They're, they're very creatively made. And I think, you know, having done design work, having done all the comic books and, and the layout and the stuff I've done previously kind of led into me being able to see that work myself. And as I said, being shown, you know, by previous researchers, Hey, this is what I'm seeing when I'm talking about effigies and stonework, I put antlers on and eyes so you can see it. That informed my, you know, that kind of was like a open my eyes thing. I talk about it like, what is that movie them where you put on the glasses and you can see the aliens yeah <laughs> that's kind of what it's like once you start to see it you can't unsee it you just start right. to see it everywhere because you start to realize how to interpret what you're seeing right and, and suddenly these don't look like european stone walls anymore and you can see the european ones and right. there's, there's more of a regularity because you, you have a great passion behind this now so did you write this book for you, or did you write this to really expand the public knowledge of this? Well, I wanted to expand the public knowledge as much as I could. I mean, I, I started a Facebook group, Ancient Stone Mysteries of New England, in December 2020. Mm. And now there are 13,300 people that are members wow. of the group. So I'm doing what I can there. And now, like Tim McSweeney 
post stuff in my group, which is awesome, you know. <laughs> and I've got other people who are are doing this this kind of research who also publish in the group and and post their finds in the group. So it's a great community where people are sharing the stonework they find and interpreting it and offering ideas. But I also know there's people that don't go on Facebook and don't go online and want right. a book. And so I thought telling the story of the places I was seeing and what I was learning in book form, kind of working off of articles I've been putting out, the posts I've been writing, pulling it together and making it into more of a book and, and sharing like over 500 black and white photos too. In the course of the book, there's a lot of pictures. I tried to share this journey so that people can make it themselves. Right. That's amazing. 13,000 people in it, that Facebook group. Yeah. I mean, well, well, it's Facebook. So the algorithm doesn't let you reach all those people all the time. Right. But it is, and, and not everybody posts. There's a lot of people who just lurk, but there are people who are posting, who read Manitou, who read Curtis Hoffman's Stone Prayers and start sharing sites. And, and Curtis actually, for Stone Prayers, at the time he put it out in 2018, he had assembled a database of something like 700 sites. And I know it's like at some astronomically higher number now because he continues to ask for and receive reports of stone sites. So wow. once I started seeing this stuff, I started reporting to Curtis, letting him know what I was seeing. Right. And I actually got the chance to work on a research trip with him last uh, October, so just about a year ago, mm. which was very cool. So it's, it's really fun to get into this work and, and have people that are into it respond enthusiastically to what i'm doing and be very encouraging so yeah so definitely folks that are interested you know take checking going on that state as you mentioned ancient stone mysteries of new england that facebook group there's probably close to thousands of videos and photos that are on here now also the new england antiquities research association so they're also having a um as at this recording there is a fall conference that's happening in marlborough mass on november 10th to the 12th as well yes that's going to be the the fall conference for near they do two each year one in the spring one in the fall okay and i'm actually going to be leading a field trip as part of the conference to one of the sites in massachusetts that i've investigated uh, around gates pond where it has King Philip's Rock and uh, a few other possible stone prayers, one of which I actually reported to Curtis Hoffman. Uh, it was like the first site that I ever reported. Wow. Okay. So I'm, I'm part of, of part of that conference. In some and and in, in Vermont, how many Vermont members are part of NERA then? There are, uh, I, I don't know the, the number offhand. I don't want to, you know, right. act like I, I've got it under, you know, top of my head here. But <laughs> there, there's, there's probably 15, 20. Maybe. Okay. All right. There's a, there's a guy in Southern Vermont, Josh Smart, who's doing a lot of work around the Montescutney area. Nice. And uh, he's got, I think it's Mysterious Mountains YouTube channel. Now, see, okay. that's another thing I actually haven't touched on yet is I started doing videos as part of this. So I have a whole YouTube channel now with God, um, I think over a hundred videos on this stuff. 
well over. Right. And, uh, so there's an Ancient Stone Mysteries of New England YouTube channel. And what I wanted to do is, is share my experiences of sites. But I'm not in my videos. I figure that people don't want to see me. They want to see the stonework. So mm. I'll go to a site. And as I take it in, I, I video, you know, I record it. And then I put together these, these videos and I narrate them after the fact. And that's why I started doing a lot of the writing and the research on the sites. Okay. To narrate the videos more accurately and to, to share information that I was discovering. Right. So each of these things has kind of fed into the other, you know. How do you prioritize your research and your passion for this to other things that you got to do on a day to day basis? Well, um, as I can. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I generally don't, as far as time management goes, I just try to make it work as opposed right. to worry too much about day-to-day -day stuff. Right. Um, and what I've found in doing this work is that things seem to happen when they need to happen. Okay. I've been kind of lucky that way. Um, but also I work for WBKM.org and sometimes I can just say, look, I'm going to need a couple of days here to do this or that. And right. it's usually not a problem to get the time. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, there's that accommodation that happens. Uh, I also don't have kids. <laughs> so <laughs> my books are my kids. But I also haven't been writing as much fiction. I've been mostly focused on this as opposed to doing the fiction. And I haven't really been doing any comic book work because this has been really what's been calling me. Right. Yeah. So the time I spent, and I used to, you know, focus a lot on those the time I would have spent on those, I'm now doing more research and, and reading and getting out in the field. Right. And I'm discovering things that I, I haven't touched on yet that I think could be even more remarkable than the smaller stone prayers. Okay. Because I think there's stuff that goes back to the Ice Age that could be monumental, even here in Vermont. Mm. Like entire ridges that may have been adapted into looking like a great serpent and a small mountain on Lake Champlain that looks like it was deliberately stratified and adapted with stones turned to make it look like gills or something. But um, it's, it's in the book. I do start to talk about it in the book, but it's still very preliminary as far as what I'm, I'm looking into. Wow. And it's radical to suggest this stuff could go back that far. But again, I, I started with the idea, it went back that far because of its location above the shoreline of those ancient glacial seas or post-glacial right. seas. Yeah. I mean, so these the things that you're discovering were ancient basically 2,000 years ago then. Oh, I'm thinking they yeah. were indeed, right. you know, probably 12,000 years old. Right. Or, or slightly newer, 11,000 right. years old. Right. We didn't think they were, you know, when I first came to Vermont, it was the early 80s, and people told me, oh, Indians never lived in Vermont, Mike. Uh, which, uh, you know, is stunning. And, and it's never been true. that you, right. It's always been provably wrong. Right. Because there's always been, you know, all kinds of evidence that indigenous people were here. 
But in the 90s, especially, they began to discover that, you know, there was continuous habitation just about from the time of the Ice Age until now, because they're still here and, you know, didn't go anywhere, but had to go undercover when, like in the early 20th century, people were trying to sterilize indigenous women because they thought they were inferior with eugenics. So, yeah, yeah, they're still here. I don't want to make it sound like this is this is the just in the ancient past. But in the 90s, that's when we discovered that there were paleo Indians living on the shores of the Champlain Sea. And I just watched a presentation by Jess Robinson, who's the Vermont State Archaeologist, and he's done a lot of work about how they traveled and what they they used for stone points and things. And he's discovered that they had a maritime aspect to their culture. Um, this is something that, that Vermont archaeologists have been writing about since the 90s anyway, because there's there's a book called The Original Vermonters by Haviland and Powers, who were Vermont University of Vermont professors mm. in archaeology and anthropology. And they they wrote about the continuing presence and this this maritime connection as well. But just recently, Jess Robinson was talking about it and how they lived on the sea. And it's it's interesting to know that people have been here all that time. And what it starts to, I don't know, to, it says to me that, you know, we've been here, what, 600 years, you know, tops? Um, these people were here for 10,000 years plus, 11,000, 12,000, 13,000 years. Right. Connecticut Valley, Champlain Valley. Yeah. I think they might have done things to the landscape. It's yeah. just a thought. Yeah. So, so I, you know, the, the thing about being an amateur doing this is I'm not constricted by having to be respectable and stay within academic bounds and I can engage in wild speculation, but I do find things that to me suggest that this stuff could go back to the ice age and could have been on the shores of the Champlain sea. Or before that, there was a a freshwater lake all across the Champlain Valley called Lake Vermont. Yeah. And in those days, the, the great lakes were also mostly like one giant lake called Lake Iroquois. Mm-hmm. And there could have been a migration from the west to the east via the waterways as the mm-hmm. Ice Age ended that brought people here while there was also a land-based migration. And those people could have come back together when the Champlain Sea disappeared because the Champlain Valley became almost uninhabitable when that happened. When the sea disappeared, it was like, I know Haviland and Powers said it could have been like in 10 years, it went from being a salt lake to being, to receding and being just like brackish, plain, fresh water. Right. So the entire ecosystem would have been just like shocked. And, right. And it all changed from, you know, different trees to different fauna. It was when, when things came back to life around the Champlain Valley, when Lake Champlain began to be habitable, right. then people showed up again, but there's like a gap where people aren't here. Right. So I think that maybe those, those different peoples left the Champlain Valley and, and mingled and, and became parts of other people. So, so Mike, if people want to learn more about your book or people want to learn more about your other books, where's the best place they could go to? For, for this book here, probably ancientstonemysteries.com. 
Okay. So uh, that's a site that connects you. You can go to uh, the Facebook page. There's a link to the YouTube site. There's a link to my Substack articles and my Medium articles. Mm. So that you can see some of the, the different things that I've tried to put out there to try to help let people know about what's happening or what, you know, could be happening. I do try to remain theoretical. I mean, these are hypotheses I'm putting out. These are, are theories that are being tested uh, as yeah. far as the stone prayers go. What, what's cool about the work that's been done before me is that I'm, you know, standing on the shoulder of people that have done a lot of preliminary work. So I come in and, and now I can kind of make my contributions and maybe take things further. And right. hopefully with the communication skills I've developed, I can spread the word about what might be out there and how it might be older than colonial and, and sheep farmers work. Right. To get people thinking in these terms and realize that the way we've always thought about indigenous people too, has been kind of closed minded and very Eurocentric. Right. And that's a good point too. Like, so ancientstonemysteries.com, um, there's a link to your Facebook group. There's a link to your medium articles. Um, your Substack newsletter and the YouTube channel there, and you can get the book straight on there as well. Yep, there are links to um, Lulu.com, which is my print-on-demand provider that I've used for all of my books over time. So right. I went back to them because I decided to self-publish this one. But yeah. you can also get it anywhere paperbacks are available online. So yeah. that's at Bookshop.org or at Barnes and Noble or at Amazon. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't say the big A first, but yes, yep. it's at all those places. I, I try to distribute to a lot more than just Amazon. Perfect. Um, yeah. So that people have the choice to, to do that. You can also go to glowinthedarkradio.com, which is my traditional site, and that has links yeah. to everything too. Well, thank you so much, Mike. This has been great. We get it's 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 so fun chatting with you. It's so you always have such great, interesting stories. Oh well, thank you, man. Yeah. The time flies. I was like, really? It's time? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that I've described things about the stonework and, and, and about the possible nature of it, the possible right. indigenous nature of it in, yeah. in ways that are understandable because I kind of get carried away. And yeah. No, you did a great. Stuff, yeah. Yeah. You know, so people can, can get it in maybe a more easy to digest form, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Well, listen, so yeah, Mike, and, you know, come back on again. I mean, not, don't come back on every like 200 episodes. You're going to come back on sooner than that next time. I'd be happy to. I'm, I'm starting to talk about things a lot more. I'm actually getting invited to do library talks. Oh, excellent. Awesome. I just lined up one for uh, Sudbury for November. Nice. All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you, Barney. talking before we went we went live last time you were on the air you had a beard as well you had all kinds of did you have a beard i think you had a beard, yeah, or... beard mustache yeah yeah see yeah
And I think it was because you, stuff gets tangled when you start going in the woods all the time. So you gotta, I see you what's what it, it is. See, I mean, as a as a science fiction and a comic book writer, you had to you know have the nice beard and the long hair. But now that you're now you're an esteemed historian of of an esteemed historian of of, of mysteries of New England, you you know you had like you said you're out in the woods a lot. So now you have to you know keep things keep things uh, trimmed up so you don't get twigs and stuff in your hair, I guess. Right. So yeah, you gotta be careful, you know, yeah. you don't want those ticks getting you either. I mean, I that's true. Know.